right, that was it, peoples. Good work. That was amazing. Go ahead and have a seat. Sit on down. Nice. Welcome. Hey, welcome, welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. My name is Jake. Um, you're probably wondering where the worship went, because normally that happens at the first of a service. I'm going to give you a little warning. We are flipping the script this morning, and the reason we're doing it is because we can do it. Um, I have searched the scriptures, and I have read God's word, and nowhere in there does it say a church service must have an opening song followed by a short welcome, followed by two regular songs, then a longer welcome, then after that you're going to do the announcements, then you have the message followed by the offering, then the re backup song followed by a dismissal. It's not in here, all right? It's not in here. So it will be normal at this church that things will get flipped around. So I'm literally going to speak, and we'll do worship at the end. So we're going to actually respond in worship today. And so we're going to start off this way. So, um, so what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of late people come in because people don't show up on time. And so when they walk down to the aisles to hit the front row, because there's a few of those still open down here, uh, just look at them, all right? Just look at them. <laughs> just stare at them and, and, and really kind of just think in your mind, why weren't you here on time? I was here on time. So just, no, don't do that, please. Okay. All right. So here's what we're doing. We're going to resume the series in Acts. It's so great to say that because we've never resumed a series. We're in our first series, and what we're doing is we're going through and we're looking at the first church. So we're obviously birthing a church. We're starting a church. So why not go and take a look at the first church and how it got started and how it went down. And so we're looking at the first eight chapters in the book of Acts. We're going to tackle them in six weeks. And so what I want to do quickly is give you a literal, little small review of what we talked about last week to bring you up to speed so you know where we're at in the narrative. So here is what's happened thus far. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we hear the story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And then in the book of Acts, where we're at, we start off with Jesus ascending into heaven. So he rose into heaven, but before he rose into heaven, what he did is he told his disciples to wait. Wait in Jerusalem, because I got a promise for you. And on the day of Pentecost, that promise came forward. That promise was fulfilled in the Holy Spirit. That was the promise. And the promise was specifically God with us for all of eternity, available to all of us for all of eternity. And so what happened then is that they started to speak in tongues or other languages. And this was the evidence of the Holy Spirit's entering into this planet, entering, well, not this planet, but entering in and becoming available to all of us. And so from there, all the crowd kind of thought they were drunk, thought they were drunk. And so what Peter does is amazing. Is he stands up at the end of all this, and he addresses the crowd. And he says, no, we are not drunk. These men are not drunk. In fact, we want to tell you about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit. And that is the message we're going to talk about today. Last week, we talked about the promise, which was the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to talk about the message, because the result of that situation was 3,000 people put their faith in Christ that day. And so we're going to talk about that message. And just so that you know, Peter didn't just share it then. He actually shared that message, almost the exact message, three times in the first four chapters of Acts. So there was a time that I just talked about, which was right after Pentecost. He addressed the crowd that was looking onward. There's another time where they healed someone, a lame man, and then they had, he addressed the crowd that started to gather um, under Solomon's colonnade. That's the one we're going to talk about today. 
And then after that, he was arrested, and he gave the same speech again to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at that second one, a one after the healing and the one where he addresses the people and the crowd under Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch, and we'll talk about what that is. But first, I want to invite Katie Parsons. Is she around? Katie Parsons, are you? Okay, she's here. Good. All right, so so glad that you're here today. I got to, like, I'll bring you up to speed on a little bit. First week, all right, this is just a little behind the scenes, you know, that how crazy church works sometimes. Um, I asked Katie, um, like a couple weeks before the first Sunday, would you be prepared to read a passage in service? And she said, sure. So she prepared, she had it all ready. And then I asked her, Katie, would you stand up and read the passage? And as she was standing up, Katie Winter stood up right in front of her and said, sure, I'll read the passage. (laughs) And I'm like, does she even know the passage? And so she read it off the screens, and I thought that was like, first off, Katie was mortified that she did that, that that actually happened. But I thought it was so cool of her that she stepped up in the moment. And so, Katie Parsons, because Katie Winter stole your thunder last time. (laughs) Are you ready to stand up? And I want you to read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. When you're ready. Nice. Good job, Katie Parsons. 
That was amazing. So good. That's a big chunk of scripture. And guess what? We're going to go through all of that right now. You're so excited. Uh, two things happened from that story. Uh, two things happened from that situation. Number one is that Peter and John, because of the healing, caused a commotion. And they, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, got really upset and they threw them in jail. And then the second thing that happened was 2,000 people put their faith in Jesus in that moment. As these guys are being hauled off to jail, 2,000 people put their faith in him, put their faith in Christ. So here's the big question of today is why don't we see these kind of results when it comes to the sharing of God's message today? Why don't we see 2,000 people jump up and say, I want to follow Christ? Why don't we see that today? And I think that there is a fundamental difference between how the early church went about sharing the message and how we go about sharing the message today. And so I actually think it's in the how, in the approach, in the philosophy of ministry. And so let me explain that. Today, for most of us, our experience of church, when it comes to the Great Commission, when it means go therefore into the world, our philosophy of ministry is bring. Bring a friend to church. How many have heard that statement in your lifetime? Just bring a friend to church. Exactly. Well, that is exactly it. What that is, is it's called invitational living. It's called bring-vitation at times. It's an attractional ministry model. And the idea is that we would create church in a way where people would feel comfortable to come. That they would feel like, oh, we're going to set it up. We're going to make it nice and easy so you can just eat it, just baby food, baby food feed it off into you. And honestly, what we have done in this is we have reduced the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, to bring your friend to church. We have taken the responsibility of us doing it and sending that message to the pastor doing it. In fact, in the Old Testament or in the New, or New Testament with the, 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 the apostles, their command was to go, not to bring, to go. They would never have had, a, a, if you asked them, how was church today? They would have been like, what are you talking about? We are the church. You'd say, did you like how the message went today? What are you talking about? We're, what, what message? The message of my life? So it was go, not bring, go. They were the church. And actually in the Great Commission, go therefore into all the world means as you're going. So as you go about life, we want you to live missionally. And that's the difference here, live missionally. My hope for this church, and we'll explain more as we unpack this as we go along, is that this time, Sunday mornings, would be a gymnasium approach. That means we would come here to train. That means we would come here to um, practice, to prepare for what? For the rest of the week where the real ministry is done. Often churches, it has a movie theater approach where you come in and it's almost entertaining, if you will, where you sit down and it's like, oh, well, I'm going to have my popcorn and I didn't like that and didn't like the worship and we critique it. I don't want that. What we want this to be is a gymnasium where we train, where we prepare for going out to the rest of the week to tell people about Jesus, to go. That's the philosophy of ministry we're going to take. And most of us have been under this bring philosophy. And so in the words of Yoda, we are going to have to unlearn what we have learned. Okay? And so we're going to try to do that today. We're going to talk about what does it mean to go. What does it mean to go? So let's go verse by verse, literally through everything she just read right there, verse by verse, and talk about what happened in Acts 3. So here it is, verse 1. One day Peter and John, and just so that you know, these guys are Jesus' closest disciples, two of his closest disciples, 
We're going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. So just so you know, Jewish custom is that you have three typical times of prayer. One at nine in the morning, this is called the morning sacrifice. One at nine, or one at um, 3 p.m., which is called the evening sacrifice, which is where they're going, and then one at sunset. These guys, being great Jewish you know, stewards, they, they're going and they're jumping in and they're praying at the time when they should pray, and they're doing it at the temple. Verse 2. Now, a man was lame from birth. A, la- a man that was, oh, sorry. A man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg, for those, beg from those going into the temple courts. Let me see if I can paint a picture for you. This is a rendering of what the temple looks like, the holy place. And so this obviously doesn't exist anymore, but that is the holy of holies. That is where the presence of God would reside on earth inside of there in a room called the holy of holies. That's where the curtain that was ripped in two um, from top to bottom at Jesus' resurrection was inside of there. And then from there, you'll see there's a variety of courts. This right here is the court of Gentiles. A Gentile is someone who is not a Jew. So if you're visiting, if you're from out of town, if you're from out of the nation, you would come and you were only allowed to get this close to the Holy of Holies. This would have been where you would have been able to reside. Ladies, I'm sorry to say this, but this is the court of women right there. And you were only allowed to get into that place. It's the same level of accessibility that the lepers were able to have at that time. Um, following inside is what's called the court of Israel. So this is where the men of Israel would come. They could come and get this close in there. Only the priests and only the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies one time throughout the year. Now, there's multiple gates that go into this place, but the two that we think are the, the gate called beautiful is either one of these two. And the reason we have, we're not really sure is because it's only mentioned in this passage inside of, um, um, in the Bible. It's only in this one. But we believe, and I think it is, this one right here, the one right dead in the middle, if you can see that. And the reason we think this is one is a beggar, if he were to go there, uh, that's where he would receive the most traffic. So it makes sense if he wants to gain money, if he wants to get money, that's where he would sit, um, be there. He probably would have been unclean, not clean enough because of his lameness, because he couldn't walk to actually enter in any farther than there. We also think this could be it because of its proximity to Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch, which I'll explain about in a little bit. But probably the part I like about it the most is that uh, that is the gate that enters in to the court of women, which I like that being called beautiful. So that's, that's awesome. So that right there gives you a little bit of context for where we're at and what um, it actually looked like where this miracle happened. Verse 3, when he, being the lame beggar, saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, and I love their response. Check this out. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, Right? They didn't ignore him. They didn't look away. Oftentimes, we look away when we're in those type of situations. When we see someone that is poor, someone that's begging, we look away. Oh, gosh, I keep thinking of, in my head, Chicago. You know what I mean? None of you guys are following me? If you see me walking by, you know that one? The tears are in my eyes. Don't look away. (laughs) Don't look away. I don't know why that just jumped in my head. That's terrible. I should keep what's in my head in my head. There you go. Okay, but they didn't look away, right? All right, and so then Peter said, look at us. So he demands his attention. 
So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. This reminds me of my kids. And I, I mean, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. My son, actually, he turns two today. This is his birthday. And person, yeah, cheer for him. He's in the nursery. So, yeah. Um, but he, uh, he, he, if he wants something, if I'm like Percy and I want his attention, he does not listen. No, like Percy, 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 come here, Percy, 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 pay attention. He does not look at me. But if I say the word cookie, oh, my gosh. He's like, because he knows he's going to get something. My boy loves cookies. So if you have a cookie, man, you want to make a best friend, hand him a cookie. There you go. He will pay attention to you. Same thing here. This guy looked at them expecting to receive something. And then verse 6, by the way, in my interpretation, is one of the best lines in the Bible, period. Best lines. Here's what he says. A guy asks for money, and then Peter says, gold and silver have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. That is powerful, peoples. Gold and silver I have none, but what I have to you, what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. That is so cool. This is like the line of all lines. You can say it for all occasions. Like imagine if you're lining up in football, all right, and it's just like you're going to play, it's flag football, and you're like, silver and gold, I have none, but what I have, I'm about ready to give to you. I mean, that is a great chance to do that. I mean, you're at Starbucks, and you're like, you know, it's like fourteen seventy-five, and you're like, silver and gold, I have none, but what I have, I give to you. And they're like, what, you got like a gift card or something? Like, you know, so it's a beautiful line. I try, I say that you use it whenever you can. It's my, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, but here's why I like it. I don't know if you can say this in church, but we haven't quite figured that out yet, so I don't know if anyone's going to fire me yet, but I don't know. This takes balls right here, what he did. <laughs> Truly. Because think about this. Only Jesus up to this point has done a miracle. Nobody else has done a miracle except for Jesus. This is the first miracle of the apostles. They don't even know if they can do it yet. Jesus said you can do it, but this is the first one. So, G so Peter, he's walking along. He doesn't know that this is going to happen. He just tries it. Silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. That's awesome. And sometimes when we put ourselves in situations in our lives, we don't know if God's going to come through, but we've got to put ourselves out there to give him an opportunity to come through. And that's exactly what Peter did right here. Great moment. And then here's what happened in verse 7. Taking him, being the lame beggar, by the right hand, this is Peter, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped. I love that. He jumped. He didn't stand. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. This is a full-fledged miracle. And I know some of us, we have a hard time when it comes to miracles because we think, you know what, it goes against the laws of nature. But think about this. Most of the miracles in the Bible are actually the, they're, they're actually the res restoration of the natural order. Eyes were meant to see, right? So when you restore sight, you're restoring the natural way of order. Feet were meant to walk. He helped him to walk in that moment. So it's the restoration of the natural order. Ears were meant to hear. I think it's phenomenal. And what happens in this moment is that this miracle is an accreditation of what Peter and John are doing. It's an accreditation of Jesus Christ himself and gives them validity and the message that they're just about ready to share. Verse 8. 
Then he, now the healed beggar, went with them, went with Peter and John, into the temple courts. This is probably the courts of the Israelites, what we just talked about. Jumping, or walking, jumping and praising God. I love that. I picture like Grandpa Joe and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, if you know what I'm talking about. I've got a golden ticket, and he does. And he walks, and he jumps, and he praises God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So what happened to him? It's really simple. This man was asking for something. He wanted what? Money. That's what he wanted. What did he get? What he needed. He got what he needed, and that's what Christ does for us. We may ask for what we want, but Christ, through the gospel, gives us exactly what we need. There's a whole other miracle that kind of mirrors this that happened in Jesus' time. I don't know if you are aware of that. This is where they brought a lame man to Jesus, and he said, and he prayed with them, and he said, your sins are forgiven. Do you remember that? And what did they say? You can't forgive sins. Only God could do that. Jesus was giving that man in that miracle exactly what he needed. More than his legs working, he needed to be in right relationship with God. And he said, your sins are forgiven. And then he went on to heal him, validating, accrediting the, who he was and the message he was given. It's the same thing here. He didn't give him what he wanted. He gave him what he needed. And then here's what happens. Peter begins to share the message that we're talking about today. While the man, the healed beggar, held on to Peter and John, I love that he's clinging to them. That's such a cool picture right there. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. So I've mentioned this a couple times. Here's a picture of the temple again. This is the eastern side of the temple right here is where we believe um, Solomon's Colonnade to be, also called Solomon's Porch. This is on the inner circle of the court of Gentiles. And what it is, is it's a bunch of columns, a bunch of pillars that are about 27 feet tall. There's a cedar roof that goes over the the top, and it's called um, the Solomon's Colonnade because it's named after Solomon's Temple, this place called the Great Hall where Solomon used to um, exercise justice. So this was called Solomon's Porch of Justice. Now it's just called Solomon's Porch, and we know this, this is beautiful, from John 10.23 that Jesus literally walked there that he was there, and we believe that this is the location where all of the, the apostles began to first share the message of Christ. It's an, under Solomon's colonnade. Here's verse 12. When Peter saw this, what he saw was the crowds forming. He said to them, and he, so basically what he did is he seized the opportunity, and he said this. He said, fellow Israelites, and as we dive into the message that he shared, notice this. He meets them on common ground. He identifies with them. He says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And so what's Peter doing next? He's doing what we all need to do when we share the message of Christ. It's point to Christ. He's pointing to Jesus. He's saying, this miracle that you just saw, I didn't do it. It's not me. I didn't do that. Jesus did that. And oftentimes when we tell our story, we cannot make ourselves the hero when we share the testimony because who is the hero? It's Jesus. 
If we really look at our story, Jesus is always the hero. And so we've got to point to him when we share the message of hope. And then he gives the gospel. Here he goes. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, again, relating to them on familiar ground, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And then here's my favorite part of this particular part of the passage because he does not sugarcoat anything from this point forward. He is shooting straight with them. He says, but you handed him, him being Jesus, over to be killed. That's pretty direct, basically saying you're murderers. And you disowned him before Pilate. Though he, being Pilate, had decided to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Ouch. Like, that's straight shooting right there. And asked that a murderer, that is Barabbas, be released to you. And then my favorite line, you killed the author of life. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, that's, I love that. You killed the author. I don't love that he was killed, but I mean, I love that you killed the author of life. Peter doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't soft pitch it. It's not on a tee. He's like, um, your sin, what you did, it's caused separation. You have nailed, you, you're the one responsible for this. When I was in high school, there was a girl I really liked. I had a crush on her. I talked to my wife. She's right there. We're cool with this. All right. Her name was Jessica, and Jessica was the cutest. And I, um, I, I could, she was so much more popular than me, uh, but, I, but she asked me one time if I would help her with her math homework. And I remember, like, I don't know how to do math, but sure, yeah, absolutely. So I went over to her house one time, and I remember helping tutor her. I can't believe that. I've never tutored anyone in my life. Tutor her in math. And in the midst of it, I don't know how this happened. She knew I went to church, and she asked me this question. She's like, so if I don't believe in Jesus, does that mean I'm going to hell? And I'm like, oh, gosh. Oh, no. How do I answer this? Um, yeah? Yeah? Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of how it is. That's kind of how it works. Yeah? So let's check out problem 13, okay? So let's get on. And I move forward, and I thought, okay, I handled that the best that I could, blah, blah, blah. Next day I go to school. I hear from everyone, everyone I'm running into, so... I heard that you told Jessica she's going to hell. I can't believe that you told Jessica that she's going to hell. How could you do something like that? And I'm like, well, because she is if she doesn't know Jesus, you know. And so I gave her the hard truth. I don't know how effective it was, but Peter does the same thing here. And we cannot say, hey, follow Christ and all your problems will go away because that's a lie, right? Eventually it will be true when we step into eternity but it's not going to make everything easy. And so we need to literally share the full truth when we share the message of Christ. Verse 15, and here's where the good news starts. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And you know what's amazing? Some of the people he's talking to could have actually been witnesses of this. They could have seen Jesus alive again. They would have known his reputation at bare minimum, if not gone and seen him perform miracles or even his resurrected body. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know, all right, back to the healed beggar, has, was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. And you can all see this. You can all see, as you can all see. Again, Peter points to Jesus. Verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, still identifying with them, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. In other words, you didn't know you murdered the author of life. But... 
This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah, that is Jesus, would suffer. And then here he tells them what to do. Here's what they need to do. Here's how they respond. Repent. Repent. And repent, just so that you know, means more than just feeling sorry for what we've done or feeling sorry for the separation or murdering the author of life. Here's what it says. It says, repent and turn to God. In other words, put your faith in so that your sins, that means everything that we've ever done wrong, may be wiped out, erased, deleted, obliterated. That times of refreshing, so the peace that passes all understanding, may come from the Lord, which, by the way, that's where peace comes from. It comes from God. And that he, being God the Father, may send the Messiah, which is God the Son, Jesus, who has been appointed, chosen, selected, handpicked for you. And the you he's talking to is not just the you that is right here. It is us. It's all of us. All of us can share in the good news. And it's not just good news. It's great news. It is the message of hope. It is the message of eternity. It is what I cling to. It's what we cling to as believers in Christ is the message and the true events that happened and the salvation that is offered to us. And so the first church, what's the difference between us and the first church? They were compelled to tell. They had to tell. They lived missionally. Their whole lives were living missionally for this message. And that's my hope for us, is that this church would live missionally, that we would live missionally. I've been asked a lot in the last two weeks, are you super excited about the response that you have seen in the church? And what most of them are talking about about this church. Most of them are talking about the numbers of people that have been coming. Because this is unprecedented. This doesn't happen. A church plant, when you start, normally starts with 25 people. If it's successful, considered to be big time successful, that's like 50 people meeting in a living room or in a, in a, in a building or something of that nature. We started our first Sunday with f- over 500 people. That's not launching a little church. That's not launching a middle-sized church. That's actually the definition of a mega church is 500 or more. We started on day one like that. So people have asked me, are you excited about that? Are you thrilled about that? Are you pumped up about that? And the answer is I have mixed feelings about it. And here's why I have mixed feelings. And I, I've wrestled with whether I should share this or not. And Dave Kelly, my mentor, said share it carefully. And so I'm going to try to share it carefully. I am excited that we have this many people. But right now, most of the people that are coming are from other churches. And that is not why I jumped into planting a church. We want to reach people for Christ. I love that you're here. Please hear me on that. Please hear me. If you've come from another church, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I want you to be here. But think about this. Unless this group of people live missionally, unless we take ministry outside of this Sunday experience, then this is just a little gathering for fun. And we can pat each other on the back, but 500 people at a church plant starting off, that's crazy ridiculous. That's not just starting a church. That could start a movement if every single one of us lived missionally. If every one of us took the message seriously, the gospel, and we went out and lived missionally. We shared the good news. We can't just put it on the shoulder of the pastor. Don't just bring your friends to church. You are the church. Bring church to them. 
And so we, and my hope, and this church is that everyone would live missionally. Am I excited? Yes. I'm excited about the possibility that if we could truly grab every one of us and get going in the same direction and moving in the same way, we would find a way not just to start a church, but to create a movement and change this region. It can happen. Because this is crazy. There is a move of God that's happening right here. This doesn't happen. I mean, obviously, we have people in the lobby right now. And this is only the third week. This is crazy talk. And so God is doing something here. But my hope is that every one of us would take personal evangelism seriously. We would take responsibility for our neighborhoods. And in order to reach people no one's reaching, we've got to do something different. And that's what we want to try. And so let's talk about what missional living is. I'm going to get very practical. I want to try to help you as much as possible because this is exactly what I need too. So here's what missional living is. Number one, missional living means let's engage with those around us on common ground. Engage on common ground. Check out what Peter did. Look at his verse there in verse 12. He said, fellow Israelites, he's connecting with them. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, our fathers, he's relating to them. Verse 17, now, fellow Israelites, he's connecting to them on common ground. And so my prayer and my hope for all of us is that we would be intentional in who we connect with and how we connect. So if your neighbor's out mowing the yard, go out and talk to them about mowing their yard. If they have kids, talk about their kids because every parent loves to talk about their kids. If the Seahawks are winning, talk to them about the Seahawks because we all love the Seahawks. Find common ground. You want to know the, the quickest way to make friends and to make connections? Talk to them about them. Everybody wants to talk about themselves. And so when you jump into a conversation and it's me, me, and what I'm doing, that's fine, but you're disconnecting. You can really connect if you just ask them questions about them. Now, here's my one request. Here's my one plea. Here's my one hope. Please be normal, okay? <laughs> Christians are so weird, so weird, so weird. It's so hard. I mean, when you go over there, take time to engage on common ground. Don't just go over and like, hey, I'm glad you came over to, for dinner. What are you doing for eternity? Okay, that is just awkward. So be normal as much as possible. Be normal, all right, and meet them on common ground. Um, I didn't ask permission, so dad, I was going to share a story, but apparently here we go. All right, so you ready for this? Um, here's what happened. Uh, my dad, he owns a business. It's, um, it's selling extinguishers and servicing fire extinguishers. And I'll go with my dad. I used to go with my dad to all these different places. And I would go and I would, um, we'd go to a church and we'd service a church. And my dad was amazing. He would speak the language. He would meet him on common ground. He's good at this. He's a great salesman. And he'd walk in there and he would quote scripture to the pastor. And it was amazing. He totally connected on their level. And then maybe even in the same day, we went to a sawmill. And then we went to the sawmill. Next thing I know, my dad's cussing up a storm, talking to this guy in the sawmill. It was amazing. And I remember thinking, what the heck is he doing? My dad was meeting them on common ground. Now, I'm not saying you need to go out and cuss at people to share the gospel with them. Okay? But what I'm saying is, like Paul said, be all things to all men so that you might save some. And that's exactly what we got to do. We got to engage with them on common ground and be intentional in the process. All right, that's the first one. Second one is this. Invest in their well-being. Invest in their well-being. There, there, by the way, are people who don't know Jesus. 
Look back at that verse. Silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Peter didn't just give them what they want. He gave them what they needed. I heard a story the other day. I believe this happened in Redmond that there was a mosque, a Muslim mosque, where the, the sign was defaced. Did you guys hear about this? It's all over the news. And so it got defaced, not once, but then they fixed it, and it got defaced again a second time. And do you know who helped them fix that sign? Other Christian churches helped fix that sign. And I know some of you be like, wait a second. We don't believe what they believe. We don't, well... <laughs> Yeah, and we probably never will because that's where our faiths divide. But you know what? If we're ever going to reach them, we've got to meet them where their needs are. And so that church helped pay for their sign to help. Like, like they were able to have conversations and relationships that they would not have had before. I thought that was phenomenal. They invested in their well-being. And if you think that's too far over the line, okay, that's fine. But I want to try to do something different in order that we may make an impact today. You know, I thought that was amazing. And so we do good things to earn goodwill, to share the good news. That's why we do good things. And let's talk about the good news because this is probably the biggest part. The third part is we have to have gospel conversations. Gospel conversations. And when I mean we, I mean we need to. You, we all need to, not just the pastor. Here's what uh, Paul sa- or, sorry, Peter says. He says in 15, but God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. We need to be witnesses to what God has done inside of our lives. In an attractional church, an attractional model church, this is most churches across the area, basically here is the, the, the great commission is bring your friend to church. And when you do that and you have them sit down next to you and they sit there and they hear the pastor's message, a lot rides on the pastor's shoulders because they're not going to reject you. They're going to reject what the pastor says. But when you have gospel conversations, you have them with your friends, however you can do it, you have to risk rejection. You have to risk it. You have to risk being rejected because that's what the apostles did. They probably got rejected left and right. And so it can't rely all on my shoulders because I will fail you. And we can't just get them all in here because nobody wants to come to church anymore. We have to be the church and go to them. And that's the difference. We've got to risk rejection. One of the greatest verses that we're not going to get to in this series, but I had to stop here. It was in the third message that Peter gave in Acts 4.20. Here's what he says. What happened was so cool was that these guys, these religious leaders says, you can't share the gospel anymore. Stop telling the message that you're saying. We are ordering you to do that. And Peter says this. He says, for we, talking about the apostles, cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They were compelled to tell. They had to tell. And he actually said, Should I listen to you and be quiet, or should I listen to God and share? And my friends, we have to share. We have to get the message out there. We have got to, we got to be compelled to tell and live missionally. Living missionally is simply engaging on common ground, investing in their well-being, and then us having gospel conversations with the people that are connected to us. That's what we've got to do. And if we do that, peoples, if we do that, holy cow. Watch out with what's going to happen. You hear that before. Oh, imagine. Truly, it can happen, but we actually have to do it. 
Oftentimes what happens is it stops right here. Pastor stands up here. He spends a message. He says, you've got to go out and you've got to live missionally. You've got to share. And then it stops. It can't stop here. And I do not want it to stop here. All of us, myself included, have to have gospel conversations with people that are in our lives. And it will be risky. And we will be rejected. And that's okay. Because we've got a bigger mission. You know, pastors for a long time have shared this statement. I've heard this many times where they said, you know what, if you had the cure for cancer and you didn't share it, right? You've heard that? How many of you heard that? I've heard that a million times. How bad would that be? You know, I heard that a million times and I thought, no big deal. Okay, I hear that and it just fell flat until I needed the cure for cancer. Until all of a sudden, so I was affected by cancer. Now, if somebody had that message and they didn't share it, I'd be really upset. Really, really upset. But friends, hear me on this one really clearly. We have more than the cure for cancer. Because the cure for cancer will only save us for this lifetime. It will only save some for this lifetime. This will help people for eternity. The message of Jesus will help people for eternity. And it's so much more important than the cure for cancer. And so we've got to share. We have to speak up. We need to be compelled to tell and live missionally. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you my favorite presentation of the gospel. You may have seen this before. But this guy gives the gospel in four minutes. I don't expect you when you chat with your friends to be as eloquent as he. Because I could not, there's not even a chance I could do what he does right here. But it is a beautiful picture of what the gospel is and the message that we are sharing. So watch this. <laughs> 